You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes Deadair Nipe here with always. Typical Lydia. Today's show, we're going to be doing the 2007 psychological horror film, 1408. You hadn't seen 1408 before. I had not seen 1408. This is one of those newer Stephen King adaptations that I kind of missed. The last one that I I, I was really on board with was The Mist, which I like that film quite a bit. This This one, Dreamcatcher, it kind of all fell out of my head. Yeah, I've watched most of the Stephen King adaptations of things because I've been a fan and reader and follower. And mm-hmm. I wouldn't say constant reader, as he calls his fans. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you only have to pick up one or two Stephen King books or have read something that was like pre-90s to be considered a constant reader, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I've definitely had my fill of Stephen King adaptations. We have the upcoming Sal, which also stars John Cusack and mm-hmm. Samuel... Leroy Jackson. <laughs> a lot of people leave the Leroy out. Uh, well, then you got to say his last name different. <laughs> Samuel L. Jackson and John Cusack will be starring in Cell, which is a kind of a cool Stephen King, these two guys thing, right? Mm-hmm. Thing going on. But yeah, 1408. I wanted to do this not only because we're entering this chunk of Stephen King type mm-hmm. stuff and we've been doing Stephen King inspired stuff. I mean... It's not only that. And it's not just that me getting this writerly Stephen King thing out of my system. Because mm-hmm. God knows I'm fucking sick of talking about writing. <laughs> we've done we've done a lot of discussions about writing. And, of course, if you guys missed it, uh, the, the podcast of uh, Nachos and Hammerstein. What is it? Try again. This is funny. Nacho and Hammerstein? Close, yeah. The horrors of nachos and hamantashen. Gotcha. I can I can't even say the fucking thing. Whatever. If they want to have a bullshit name for their podcast that's hard to pronounce, then that's their fault. Yeah, it's true. It's a great show, though. And yeah, it is, I it go is a great show. Writing. I'm being shitty, but it is a really great show, and it's a really great episode. If you guys want to know a lot about uh, Lydia, uh, her outlook on life, which you might be able to posit from 68 episodes of this show, but the, I. A very close friend of Lydia that I like to brag about learned some things about her. Well, like what? You said that and I was curious and I was like, what the H? I think what I found really fascinating was your ideas about if you are or are not a depressed person. I found your answer very interesting because if someone were to ask me, is Lydia a depressed person? I would have been like, yeah, water's wet, fire's hot, sky's blue. Lydia is a depressed person. Yeah. Uh, and I don't mean that in a shitty way. I just mean as like if, if anybody were to, what else could someone glean from your writing if not the fact that you have a dark sensibility and that comes from somewhere, right? And then meet me in real life and I talk words and like look at them in the eye and stuff and then they're totally taken aback because they expected <laughs> some sort of like moping thing in the corner, right? That was a Charlie Brown rain human. cloud over top of you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's not the truth either. So I think the answer actually like, Fits with reality, right? Yeah, I agree. My not version a, of reality. Not, not, not everyone is one thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were definitely other things there that, of course, are uh, my brain is failing me right now. But I remember thinking, huh, oh, that's interesting. Maybe it was just things that I just uh, didn't want to ask you or never occurred to me to ask you that these guys 
had no problem asking you. And then, of course, uh, there's the episode, uh, is it 137? 138. 138. Like the Misfits song. Ooh. You're the big Misfits fan out of the two. I am the big Misfits fan, uh, and I love that. So uh, you did one with uh, uh, BTK, Bind Torture Cast, and it's a really good episode, too. You guys got to talk about the corpse of Anne Fritz. And uh, it seems like a really cool flick. I'd never seen it before. You guys say corpse fucking a lot? Yeah, I was going to say, if you need to learn things about me that you can't learn from the horrors of Nachos and Hamantaschen, then you can tune into Bind Torture Cast and learn just how many times I can say corpse fucking. And it's not just that we say corpse fucking like 18 times in the first like hour. I think it's in the first half hour, actually. We say it 15 times. It's a lot. Not it's, like I counted or It's anything. a lot. Um, we say different combinations of fucking the corpse and fucking the dead body and corpse rape. Like we, there's other versions of corpse fucking in there too. So yeah, we can think on our feet, Chris and I. On that episode of Vine Torture Cast, also we talk about writing because Chris is really sly that way and gets me talking about writing, even though I really don't like to all of the time. And I was talked out last week mm -hmm. talking about writing big time. So there's a little bit of that and a hell of a lot of corpse fucking and Corpse Man of Fritz is a great film. So we had a lot of fun. I love being on that show, actually. So maybe there'll be more in the future and more like BTK Dead Air podcast orgies where we try and shove all of us in your ears as hard as we can. Uh, that would be a time, wouldn't it? Mm, oh, my God. Mm, it'll be fun. Trust <laughs> me. Uh, I, don't, I really don't know what prompted us to get into the Stephen King of it all. I think it started with Cujo. It started. <laughs> it begins and ends with Cujo. It does. Really. Yeah. It, that's exactly why this all happened. But then some of these other titles, like a lot of 80s movies remind me of other 80s movies. And that just like naturally turns into our little production schedule. And 1408, I just naturally wanted it to come after House. Mm -hmm. The only reason being is that they're both better than Oculus. Okay. And they all have a lot to do with one another. It's like you keep pulling back to Oculus, so you're really shitting all over it. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't have a fun time with Oculus. But it's like a reluctant kind of like throwback to it because I'm like, I see Oculus, that story and a lot of stuff. So you could be an asshole and be like, yeah, it's because they ripped off all these storylines or it's not original writing or blah, 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 which isn't entirely true. Mm -hmm. I did. There was lots of stuff I liked about Oculus. Those elements I liked about Oculus are found in things like 1408 for mm -hmm. sure because one of the ways that this room is described is that it's an evil fucking room mm -hmm. that uh the lasser glass was an evil fucking mirror mm -hmm. so it works out in my mind and i definitely wanted to do 1408 after we did oculus for mm -hmm. sure to make me feel better about it because i liked 1408 and a lot of stephen king fans are bitchy about his adaptations and a lot of them are bitchy about this and then they throw you three or four different endings to this movie to make you have more things to be bitchy about so even though it is a, a well-liked movie and it was a well-received movie it still has things people can bitch about mm -hmm. this movie did make some serious banking on 25 million bucks over 130 million dollars uh all in that's pretty damn impressive and uh it, it is true that you know stephen king's the idea that it's a, an adaptation of Stephen King is definitely going to draw people towards it. It certainly doesn't hurt. But also the fact that a movie w that has a budget like this, I mean, it really can't help but make a profit. But even even when you're crossing like the $100 million mark on a horror movie, psychological or not, is really damn impressive. I'm sure at the time 
It was the Stephen King adaptation being a draw. Everything's Eventual was a collection it came out in. The title story of that Everything's Eventual was a really good dark story. And it was, in my mind, like one of those times when Stephen King was going back to his 80s roots and his writing horror again because people complain so many times about him not writing horror anymore. You can write whatever the fuck he wants to write. You know, sometimes he writes things that remind you of the way he used to be and shit like that. And as much as I shit on people for talking about an author like that and thinking that, like, you know, having a little ownership over their style and the way they write, um, it was nice to read Mm -hmm. some really good, strong Mm -hmm. horror short stories because the short stories are something special, like definitely something special. Um, And a lot of the film adaptations and we're talking about, including sequels, over 50 fucking film adaptations of this dude's literary work that's 40 films for people to fucking hate and bitch about and say it's not like the book and rah, 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 rah. but that's insane to i know me. that's a lot that's... he's prolific with a capital p and, and it's crazy because you know we talked about this a little bit uh before we went but you know my um relationship with stephen king or my understanding of his writing came from the through my mother my mother was a big Stephen King fan, and you know, so her uh, his books were in our household, including collected works of all the short stories. It was everywhere, and it's weird because like I would be watching these films all the time: Misery, Christine, The Shining, It. Sometimes they come back. That's a good one that I really enjoyed, and that was adapted very faithfully. The Shining, on the other hand, something that wasn't adapted as faithfully that people have so much contention about, so much opinion about. Yeah. There's many to choose from. There is so many, so many. And as a kid, how are you seeing these movies? I'm seeing them pretty much on TV. Yeah. And I'm not catching them all the way through or, or, or whatever, Graveyard Shift, like as if I knew, the, even though that's in the title, Stephen King's Graveyard Shift. Dead I, like, Zone was a really popular one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I would just watch these movies and then later on I would learn as I kept getting older oh that's a Stephen King adaptation I had no fucking idea and and it, it like children of the corn who knew right and these horror movies based off of his work have become staples to horror fans there's people who love these films and haven't necessarily even read the books they just know the movie like I've never read Pet Cemetery. I've never read Carrie I've never read Christine I've never read Children of the Corn, anything. And your mother was a fan, so you had these lining the walls. I had these lining the walls, and I'd read most of them. I've pretty much read every Stephen King work before the film came out because it was sitting right there at my disposal. Yeah, it was weird because I remember one time there was an episode of um, The X-Files that was coming on, and I was a big X-Files fan because I was 13, 14 years old, spooky age, where I really liked paranormal shit. Anyways... My parents didn't really like everything that I liked, so I thought that this X-Files episode written by Stephen King would be... Like, interesting to your mom. Interesting to my mom. I was like, I can connect with my mom in this thing, and, and maybe, she'll be, maybe she'll watch the show, and maybe she'll like the show, and then we can watch it together. So I told her about it, and then she, not like in a shitty way, but kind of dismissively, said, oh, what's in the episode? Is it this? Is, it, is, is there this aspect or this aspect? And I was like, yeah. Is that... checklist the Stephen King plot points? Yeah. And I was day? like, and I said, yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, there is. How did you know that? And she's like, because he just writes the same things over and over and over <laughs> again. And so that infected my brain. 
And so when people wanted to know my opinions about Stephen King, my mom's words just came out of my mouth. Oh, he's just, he's very prolific, but he's super repetitive. Like, I'm saying that like I'm some kind of fucking authority. And how many it. Stephen King novels have you read, sir? Just, just a couple, right? Not yeah. enough to even have... Especially considering 50 adaptations of film in under his name. Think of the amount of written words. Yeah. Unfucking real. I don't even know. Probably like 300 books. Something like that. It's, it's, it's insane. Hundreds of thousands of fucking stories, basically. It, it's crazy. It's a dude that is those writers that is that says you write every single day. Now, the difference is, is a lot of people might write every single day and then put it in a box somewhere. He's just like, no, this is... <laughs> Or they might write every single day and think it's gold, it's actually dirt, and try and publish it and it just turns to shit in their hands where he understands the process. He understands he's been in the game so long and he's Mm -hmm. been there when it was just beginning to boom as far as horror anyway. Mm -hmm. And he understands how to create Mm -hmm. effective stories and to tell stories. I'm sure you could sit him around any campfire and he would just rhyme off the most golden perfect campfire story ever because he's just a storyteller and he's a businessman and editor yeah oh yeah can hire businessmen and editors or whatever that's what you do when you're stephen king but what as i got older and i realized all of these films all of these films that i loved were adaptations of his work i couldn't just sit there and regurgitate that line that line that my mom said because it doesn't it's not that not that my mom is incorrect, and, and and believe me, she was a Stephen King fan. She was probably just like offhandedly. Oh no, saying I was something. there in the bookstores with my mother too, and be like, "Hey, Lisey's story is a new Stephen King," and she'd be like, "Oh my god, I don't want to read another Stephen King story." That well, like, here, give me that. Give me okay, fine, fine, yeah. yeah. And it's just like, why are you so dismissive? Like, you like this guy, yeah, but. Like, there is a, there is a, a, such a thing as too much of a good thing. I think that's an illness of Stephen King fans specifically because they're like, I'm going to take a chance one more time, man. I'm going to give this guy one more chance 50 <laughs> fucking times in a row to impress me the way he did with mm-hmm. X book because everyone has their X book of Stephen King. Yeah. Um, those that are the more diehards, his constant readers, have a good list of like 20 Stephen King things they consider gold. And that's their standard of Stephen King. And that's different among everybody. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people that don't like his old horror, don't like his short stories, think he improved, of course. People that only read The Dark Tower and they read anything else and they don't like it. Yeah. You know, it's all so very different because he has such a huge body of work and it's so varied. Mm-hmm. Like, then you get the people that like his when he's writing at his most strong Mm -hmm. and that can be new stuff old stuff unheard of stuff famous stuff you know like it's such a fucking mixed bag with him so his fans that have read everything his constant readers can tend to get a little dismissive Mm -hmm. it's just the nature of the kind of writer he is this weird fucking thing he is yeah and and i can't for the life of me think of another writer more prolific can you i mean you you definitely know more about this entire world than i do i mean i'm nothing if not a cinephile so is there anybody that's touched this level of living that has touched this level of prolificacy fame no i can't like i could you can name people that have written more things that became films you can name people who have written more things you can name people who have written more broadly and have their work under every dewey decimal category you could name authors that are on the tips of everyone's tongue you know like jk rowling everyone knows everybody 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 worldwide but all those people already knew stephen king so 
that yeah. knocks her out of the running. No, there, there. He is the greatest living writer. Period. And he fucking supersedes a hell of a lot of dead guys too, which is an amazing feat. Yeah, yeah. Like, and it's I'm saying this not dismissively, but just sort of like, yeah, like it's yeah. Like no contest. Almost. I think it's also because he's as humble about it too. He'd he'd yeah. probably just be like, "Oh, go on," you know. Like <laughs> he he doesn't have a rock star mentality, although he is a rock star's rock star when it comes yeah. to this fucking writing thing. It, it's definitely in the back of people's mind uh, if they're really ambitious writers or they want to become famous off of their writing. That is what they would be reaching for. It's weird because a lot of times people, and it's thrown out so often, and if there's any writers listening, I mean, whatever, hi. Uh, <laughs> hi. <laughs> people will be like, oh, so-and-so writes like Stephen King, or oh, you write like Stephen King, or I wanted to write like Stephen King. Everyone throws this sort of Stephen King thing around. Um, so when people are like, oh, I, I read this and it's a lot, you write like Stephen King, and I'm like, well, which Stephen King? Yeah. What Stephen King? And just by the law of averages, I guess, I bet you... You could combine all of his works together and every sentence <laughs> combination possible. <laughs> yeah. In, so everybody uh, writes like Stephen King. Yeah. It's just a fact. It's the lowest common denominator. Yeah. No. Oh, <laughs> that sounds so shitty. But that's what you mean if you feed it all into a computer and spit out good writing. That's what it sounds like. He's just lucky. He's hit that, that rhythm. And seemed to come in at the exact right time. Yeah. Right into the early 70s, right when his horror adaptations were blowing people's hair back because no one at the time was 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 getting their stuff adapted that was consistently. I mean, yes, there was tons of films that were adapted off of horror stuff. Oh, for sure. But but like when it came to oh, this this guy's writer, this guy's a writer and one of his movies got turned into a a, a film and it was successful. And then another one was successful. And then another one was successful. And it was also his turnover rate, too, because he's prolific. And he was there was books on the stands that were his next biggest thing that people would be like, ooh, I can't wait till that's made into a movie. Exactly. That was the mentality of it yeah. all. And it sort of slowed down a little. Like, by the time 1408 rolled around, like, there was still very regular summer movies coming out under the Stephen King umbrella, mm -hmm. for sure. But it wasn't as noticeable. Because mm -hmm. um, he is, like... It's these tendrils of Stephen King creeping yeah. through horror, especially cinema, that aren't as noticeable. So, like, when 1408 comes out, I even, like, I knew I wanted to see it. I'd read the story, was very interested, but I was like, I wonder if anyone else will be interested in it. So it's good to hear that it made money, because I wasn't paying attention to stuff like that back mm -hmm. then. I still kind of don't. But I'm I'm fascinated to wonder, like, why did people come out? Was it John Cusack? Was it Samuel L. Jackson or was it the Stephen King story? Or was everyone just like, what I really want is a good haunted hotel room story? I think it was a combination of those things. You have people like Sam Jackson. That's a box office draw. People time. people will go to see a movie that Sam Jackson is in. Uh, people will go see a movie that John Cusack is in. He is a leading man. Uh, you know, you have the, the, the Weinsteins behind this who are incredibly good. At advertising. And you get super nerds like me that are like, he was in Stephen King's Stand By Me ages ago. So you got this Stephen King, John Cusack thing that yeah. super Stephen King nerds were like, oh, and yeah. Yeah. But uh, so uh, uh, so the, this movie was advertised precisely right. And, I, and I'm just assuming because the, the wine scenes are behind it and they have made it their business to know how to advertise movies. And not only that, low budget. Low budget... Big draw. 
it's as tried and true as a fucking cola formula when the wine scenes are producing any sort of horror. And Stephen King, John Cusack, Samuel Jackson, and 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 even though this movie seems super fairly mainstream, it also is a movie that not a lot of people talk about. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, I, like especially, I, I never hear horror fans talking about. Have you seen 1408? I never hear that. I hear, of course, the classics: Misery, Children of the Corn, Carrie. I get the opposite effect because a lot of horror films are written about writers that are by writers. Stephen King is kind of like famously guilty of writing about writers yeah and i worked in a hotel so it's like a double whammy oh you're a writer you ever watch 1408 same with secret window mm-hmm. i get that a lot oh really secret window oh my god yeah because you know it's a horror film about a writer yeah this new hush movie i'm gonna get that once everyone's seen it and it's really like mm-hmm. sunk in i haven't properly. seen that flick yet any oh, good? Great. great i really enjoyed it i keep seeing it on netflix but i it. tend to gravitate to horror films about writers i love horror films about writers as mm-hmm. a writer i always have but then i worked in a hotel and of course, everyone's like, "Oh my God, have you seen 1408?" Yeah. Because like hotels, it's probably the one of the best haunted hotel movies, and a little more closer to home for someone who's ever worked in a hotel than something like The Shining would be. Yeah, because there's it's not an active hotel in The Shining. No, that's like a haunted mansion story, really, when you think about it. Yeah, this is very hotel centric. For anyone that stayed in a hotel, you can have some fun with 1408 that way. Oh, absolutely. There's all kinds of uh, things that anyone that stayed in a hotel from weird stains to how much beer nuts will cost to talking to a receptionist to having to, uh, you know, talking to maintenance people. Just just the, the business of being in a hotel. It's pretty funny. Even like, oh, here's the Bible. I'm opening the closet. It's just hangers here. You know what I mean? Like the... the 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 checks that we all do every time we enter a hotel that I always do. I cannot help myself every time I go to any hotel that I'm ever staying at. I open every drawer. I open the closet. I go through everything. And I'm not looking for anything, really. Because when I pull out a drawer and I'm empty, I'm like, oh, it's empty. And then I open the closet. I'm like, yep empty there's the ironing board there's the 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 pillow and the plastic on the top shelf there's the extra blanket if we need it you know (laughs) oh here's a desk i'm gonna sit in the chair and like look i'm a businessman at the desk and and, oh here's stationary i'm just gonna like doodle circles in it like that's that's what i do in a hotel that's what everybody does every single time and then if you clean a hotel you start like lifting up the bed pad and you're lifting up between the mattresses because you know how to remake the bed and it's going to look just as beautiful when you're done fucking with everything and checking for every kind of whatever stain it is that we're looking for. I'm going to check if the soap's being rewrapped. You're going to not use the cups. You know, stupid stuff like that that people who clean hotels. But before we really get into the room, as it were, mm-hmm. and unlock the door mm-hmm. of 1408, I just want to... Go on about a podcast again because I love podcasts. Okay, and not just our podcast or Bind Torture Cast, which I love dearly. No kidding. There's another literary podcast, Wes. Another one. Another horror lit podcast. Well, you know what? Lay it on me. Don't leave me in suspense. I won't. It's called Darkness Dwells, and you know what's even better than being a horror lit podcast in my books? Was that being a Canadian horror lit podcast? Oh my god. Yeah. I know, right? It's these guys, Jason White and Michael something. They do this. It's a newish podcast. I think they're only on episode 13. Let that sink in ominously for the episode that we're doing today. Dun, dun, 
dun, dun. No, I don't know. They're probably episode 15 by now. But it's another really good. And they're covering all of the people that were featured in this um, anthology gutted that had come out not long ago. Some really up and coming names. The future Stephen Kings, as it were. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are contained within that book. I got a digital copy of, of gutted and really enjoying it. So it's fun to read along well, not really long. I'd already read it, but like go back to the stories where they're talking to some really big name authors and some up and coming authors. The number, the first story was picking splinters from a suck slave. And I really enjoyed listening to the interview with that author because I'd never heard of him before. So it's really, really fucking cool podcast. So once you're done listening to this, Bind Torture Cast, Horror of Nachos and Hamantaschen, check out Darkness Dwells. Mm-hmm. I really, really am digging the fuck out of that. And it's, this whole literary thing, aside from me being a writer and liking like literary podcasts, I do the new releases. I'm the new release curator for the Horror Writers Association. I've only mentioned that once or twice. I'm not here to like sell HWA stuff, but I do like cover art. Mm-hmm. And I really should have mentioned this on our last episode when we were talking about the covers of VHS. When I first started to appreciate art and horror art and VHS covers as a kid in the video store, at the same time I'm appreciating the covers of books, mm-hmm. right? So I curate a page full of just the front covers of fucking horror novels. So not much has changed in Lydia land since I was 14 and mooning over things like the cover of House. And right now we have four new ones, Invasive by Michael Hodges, Madhouse, which is another anthology that came out around the same time as Gutted, so I hope people talk to the authors in it. Um, Madhouse is edited by Brad C. Hodson and Benjamin Kane Etheridge. We have Seven Words of Sorrow by David E. Cohen and Lament of the Fallen by Andy Pelican. So Madhouse in particular is another like story about insanity and insane asylum, and it's got a hotel feel. From what I understand, I haven't read the book yet. But it's a shared world anthology, so everyone's writing about the same location. There's another pitch for a future anthology about a hotel, and they gather up all these writers to write stories that took place in this hotel. And then they went back to the authors and said, hey, can you work in this? Or hey, can you make the color of this this? So that all the stories sort of meld together. So it's like hotel horror is like an up-and-coming thing. Steve Rasnick Tem with Deadfall Hotel. And you know what? Like, a lot of these people are HWA members and I end up seeing the covers of all these books. So if anyone's interested in like seeing not only more of what I do, because I don't give a fuck about what I do, but seeing some sexy eye candy, eerie eye candy, if you will, dark black eye candy, then go over to the Horror Writers Association at horror.org. Stephen King's a member, so I thought I'd definitely plug away. Yeah, um, and so it's always nice, you know, we're, we, we're a podcast, people who listen to us like to listen to podcasts and they like horror they probably like literature and so anytime that we can direct people towards other podcasts that deal in this kind of stuff i'm always happy to do that especially another canadian podcast darkness dwells is an anomaly so far and they seem to be doing really well absolutely i've been asked to write hotel horror before even when i worked at a hotel my manager was like are you gonna write scary stories about it because she was way too scared to read my stuff and she tried once and couldn't do it so she was like living vicariously through you the idea of you writing a scary book or maybe what she was really looking for was like i work in a hotel i need to read a story where someone is working in a hotel so the story absolutely speaks to me so i have no choice but to read the story even if I'm too scared to read it. Do you think she was looking for the absolute 
representation of her in this book. That could have very well been it because she was when I was like, you know, you're not going to read it. And she's like, I will. I'll try. I'll do it. And it's like, okay, I'll write a hotel. And I have like outlines for like a whole bunch of hotel short stories, right? It's a very hot thing. Like, I'd say expect more of it. It's always been a thing with writers, though. They spend so much fucking time in hotel rooms. And I think that hotels lend themselves to this idea that I've always found absolutely fascinating, where you can know the history of a city or you can know the history of a house, but you can never know the lives that have lived there. And if you're looking at a house and you walk into it and, and someone tells you this house is 135 years old, I instantly start thinking about what were what were the lives like here? Not not the, 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 the age of a house like that could be staggering, but you're dealing with, let's say, a multi-generational household. How many people were we really talking about here? Not that many. And so people's lives are probably not that much different from yours. They might be a different gender, race, or creed, but for the most part, probably doing the same type of stuff. That's how come when you find out a murder occurred here, then it's extra juicy. And of course, we all want those dark stories in these buildings. Hotels elicit so much more imagination because of the fact that Every room you're in could have had a different person in it every single day for 365 days a year. And any number of things could happen in here. Rich people could be here. Uh, rich people who are completely boring or on drugs or like perverts, murderers, like poor people. Anybody could have been here. And then the hotel staff, the people that actually worked in this building. As like, and, and hotels can attract all manners of class via people who are staying in a hotel or working in a hotel. And the lives intermingling on that level and that feverancy can't help but be disgust a, me. Disgust you, I know, but for the most part. And wouldn't that be something at the at the epicenter of a horror story that perhaps would frighten you? The what could be created from the combination of just neglectful housekeeping, something festering, something being created unnatural to anyone, a, a combination of so many different variables of blood and piss and semen and, and, and like toxic chemicals, whatever, from anything, creating something to exist within this hotel that could infect people, like in the movie The Condemned, or it could like create like a fucking life form. You don't even know, right? The, oh, I've walked into hotel rooms exactly with that happening, yeah, you know, and nothing more terrifying than a do not disturb sign being there day after day after day for housekeeping staff, I'll tell yeah. you that. Yeah, I'm definitely that guy, by the way. I'm a do not disturb for multiple days. It's like, different to walk out of your room once in a while and be like, hey, here's some towels, can I have some towels? Or mm -hmm. something like some sign of life in there and not just be that scary, stinky room. Like what's going on in there? What sort of a dark sacrament is yeah. occurring? But as a writer, it's like a can of spinach. It just invigorates you. So that I can see hotels being something I'm like, I'm talking myself into a fucking haunted hotel story right now. I can believe it. I can see it in your eyes. Yeah. That do not disturb. Do know? not disturb. Yeah. Um, and it's also the whole write what you know thing, right? Exactly. And they spend a lot of time in hotels. Lots of other people spend time in hotels. It's like instant match made in heaven. Mm -hmm. Everyone will understand this. Like my boss that had wanted me to write a horror story. She'll never read about a hotel because she'd probably read it. Mm -hmm. You know, everyone can really relate to that. And it makes me want to watch, finally come back to American Horror Story, mm -hmm. the hotel series, because I dropped out mm -hmm. during 
freak show. Mm-hmm. So I would I should go back for the hotel. And I meant to, I just haven't yet. Mm-hmm. Because that does speak to me. And I know how scary hotels can be. And how creepy hotels can be. Mm-hmm. The hotel season of American Horror Story is really, really cool. It's kind of a lot of things. Like I remember trying to figure out when I was first watching it. I was like, what is this hotel? And I'm like, oh, it's a... Uh, it's like a murder hotel, like H.H. Uh, uh, Holmes. Yeah, yeah. And, and, then, and then I'm like, oh, so th- it's haunted. Oh, so there's there's vampires. There's all kinds of things. And I was like, this is just like the kitchen sink of fucked up hotels, I guess. So um, I really dug it. But um, Sort but- of like if you take the top five really awesome, scary hotel stories, especially Deadfall Hotel, which is like a totally unsung gem of Steve Rasnick Thames. And I re- I recommend that book to like fucking everybody really. Mm-hmm. Um, take that and five other ones then, and smush them all together, and you kind of get that season of AHS. From what I understand, mm-hmm. I do have to watch that. Now this though, fourteen oh eight was the Stephen King short story written like, and he has a little preamble about the time spent in hotels and how creepy they are and how they speak to everyone and why they exist and like a little bit of preamble and about how filthy they are and how many stories and lives come and go in this space. So he does talk about that in the preamble for the short story in the original book. It's a very short story. Things happen very, very differently. It's a little more scary because it's a lot more subtle and the ending is completely fucking different. So we're not going to talk about the differences at all. Mm -hmm. Like this is where that lives and dies. This this is the, 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 I always just tell people that is the art of adaptation. You take something, you break the back of it, and then you reformat it for film or for television. It is never going to be 100%. And before you start citing me examples about where things are 100%, I get it. But by and large, not everything, in the same way that people will say, why why don't they in comic books make just copy the comic books into the movies? Why do they change it? Why do they change their outfits? Because it doesn't translate to film. Believe me, if it did, they'd just do it. And if not, sometimes, on the other hand, it could be we just wanted to do something different. And yeah. they have every fucking right. Like, yeah. a few minutes into watching 1408, when it when I first, first watched it, uh, when it started getting different, and it was pretty different pretty fast, and I was like, okay, um, this isn't like the story. Great. Awesome. Yeah. Whatever. And plus, you're, it's a, you're trying to adapt a short story into a 90-minute film. Yeah. So you need to do something different. It was listed as being uh, one hour, four hours minutes and eight seconds on some copies so it's this whole 1408 13 you know it's it's really steeped in 13 so if anyone's like got that you know numerological head to watch this film they'll notice a lot of instances of that and that's really common with stephen king films and not only does he do cameos very often um he does work in like the number 13 and 666 Mm -hmm. and like almost all of them so it's not abnormal and it's specifically not abnormal for a 1408 because it does equal numerologically 13. One of the cool things about this film that I like is that it has a lot of um it's got a very minimalist cast. I love films like that where it really this film really is on uh, John Cusack's shoulders. Now, John Cusack plays a writer named Michael who seems to excel in books about the paranormal. He seems to be kind of doing what I've I've often thought about really wanting to do, especially last episode we were talking about that haunted house on the lake where my cottage is. I'd always wanted to just go there and get the story. What is the definitive story? Because I've heard so many different versions of what happened in this place. 
what is the definitive story or can we collect all of the stories and spend a night there and see what happens this guy literally does that in his in this film where what he does is he goes to places motels hotels whatever places off the beaten path but specifically hotels like like you know it's not just going to be like haunted motels yeah. so now he's probably doing haunted hotels yeah and and so he goes to them he records their individual stories he records his experiences there and it doesn't seem like he's doing this specifically to debunk them however he goes to these things looking for something finding nothing and then writing about that quite honestly which and is what you want. That's totally what I want in a skeptic. That's what I want in accurate reporting. And that's what I want in a paranormal book. And it sort of warms you up to the idea that, well, I can go and replicate his experience and go stay in the room. And who knows, maybe I'll see something, but probably not. So it's safe. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of part of the angle. Because mm-hmm. he does say something about, like, your occupancy is going to shoot up 50% after I write this. Mm-hmm. Whether I see anything or not, which I won't. He's totally yeah. Scattered. So he seems to be fairly successful. I mean, he's successful enough to have fans. He's successful enough to be at a book signing. I mean, he's successful enough that his uh, literary agent is very excited about everything that he seems to do. Yeah, Sam, played by Tony Shalhoub, who mm-hmm. was in 13 Ghosts. Correct, yeah. He was the father in 13 Ghosts this time. He is sort of just uh, in there as a, as a smaller role, as his agent. It's a great role for him. He does it really well. He gets to sit in a big office and just... Just seem really enthusiastic. Yeah. I, I like him better as an agent than a dad, which is kind of like being a dad, but he's a way more fun dad. Yeah. <laughs> I liked him a lot better in this, even though it's so tiny. But it is tiny, and it mostly is. We see a lot of John Cusack. We see enough, a little bit of Samuel L. Jackson, not enough to call it a bit part. No. Yeah. He's definitely present. We just do spend a lot of time in 1408. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Sam Jackson basically has... A, a, a two major scenes in the film three major fe- scenes in the film and you count his little tiny scene in the fridge <laughs> that is a little scene <laughs> i can just picture him being like two inches high like a smurf like a little... you know, it kind of reminded me uh, that like i couldn't help the whole time thinking that he was uh, mr conductor from <laughs> thomas the tank engine just standing in the fridge now what base what is happening now is it's weird because they they John Cusack's character is presented as, if I were to try to think of a a stereotypical writer character, it would have all of these beats. Everything from wearing sunglasses inside to being an alcoholic to... Having quit smoking. Having quit smoking, but having the the cigarette behind his ear. Ugly hat? Ugly hat. Oh my God, that hat. I know, you really hated his hat. I don't it, care about his hat. His, it was distracting to me. It, it, where it looked so wrong. I was like, the hat is too small, your head is too big. I think that was his I'm not writing and I have a new life hat because he only wore it when he wasn't on duty type thing. Mm-hmm. He was like off duty. He's a surfer. That's that's a, that's not weird, but that's a, that's a thing that's off model, we could yeah. say. Yeah. Other than that, though, yeah, he's stereotypical horror. Well, not only horror, but like a paranormal, like, reporter you know mm-hmm. what i mean like this true what do you like he's a non-fiction author at that mm-hmm. uh but prolific enough to have a book tour so he, he definitely has cool. a, a book tour um even though this in particular moment there's a scene that is in like a barnes and noble or a chapters or whatever and 
no one really seems too excited that he's there except for two really big fans. One of his fans was a very sweet interaction. She had one of his old books before he started to write this kind of stuff. It looked like he was writing fiction, normal fiction. And uh, there was, it seemed to have like touching family relationships in it. Maybe touching, touching, you mean touching with fists. I think that that book was about him and his father not getting along and probably some sort of like domestic abuse that he had to rise up against that's why him and his father never go i really think there's, that's what it was about there's enough evidence to support that throughout the film in peppers yeah it, but yeah because i i wasn't really sure i was like i definitely can see a father that's non-supportive of a writer's son but not it's i, I don't know abuse the aside from like get your hands off me old man I, I can't, I don't know. Like, and then everyone refers to the father in the book as a bastard. And then they look at him and be like, was any of that true? And the way they look at him was like, did did he fucking do all those horrible things? Yeah, and, it's possible. you know, what horrible things? Like, he didn't support my writing. Well, yeah. that, the guy's a real bastard. Don't tell me that's true. Well, no, no, my dad's real no, like... supportive. Like, <laughs> no, nah, I'm pretty sure that it was a pretty harrowing tale in the long road home. I really do. Just from the tone and the acting of these other tertiary characters, right? And the way that they would react to the book. Even Samuel L. Jackson has a a word to say about it. And with his steely gaze, you have to expect that his father was beating on him in the book, right? But he's always very protective of that and being like, no, 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 that's that's not true. But we're pretty sure that it is. So we get like this, yeah, peppered in backstory that him and his father do not fucking get along mm-hmm. we get the backstory that he's divorced from his wife and everything's mm-hmm. real sad and he's not mm-hmm. going to talk to her even though she's in new york and he's in new york because he's going to check out this dolphin hotel yeah he gets a he gets a postcard that he should check out this place called 1408 specifically ask for this room and he tries to get this hotel room and they say that it's not available and he keeps saying next week next month next summer and at no point not is available. room yeah. available. So he figures out pretty quickly that there's something fishy going on, that they're essentially trying to refuse him the room. His agent gets a lawyer and espouses this law that they cannot legally refuse you the room if it is indeed available. All you have to do is be firm that this is the rule they want. And if they don't give you the room... Well, we just start rabble rousing and and uh, and start the legal process, and they don't want that, so they'll probably just give you the room. But the the threat from his publisher seems to be there, like letting you know, like this guy's coming, he's gonna want this room, and if you don't give him this room, you're fucking. Yeah, we're gonna elevate our concern, and I don't know if that's an actual valid law i i really highly doubt it is because an out of order room is an out of order room mm-hmm. and that's up to the hotel's discretion they could just say it's unsafe mm-hmm. like, no one i don't think is has any right to come and prove to them because it's their property you know although but, one, although once you hear about the history of the room you could maybe assume that they're they, lying well they well yes that they're lying but also that they're they don't want people talking about this too much it's just one of those things that they quietly the room is not available and don't worry about it. And we don't want it to be a whole thing. Yeah, because he gets... It's weird, though. Like, he gets a, a postcard that says something like, don't stay in 1408. It's just a random postcard. It's almost to think that the Dolphin Hotel sent it itself to mm-hmm. him. Because uh, I can't think of anyone who would have. And he would probably think, oh, it's somebody that works at the hotel that wants me to come write about it to, like, pump up 
this story so that they get famous for it, but they're actively hiding it. Like the postcard itself is kind of an anomaly in this whole story because he does return later to try and find it and can't, but like it shows up from who, who knows. And that's what like starts this ball rolling because he would have never heard about it. But this is a guy that is actively writing a book about this exact thing. And he's never heard about this in a city he used to live in, which is New York, where his wife still lives. And he's like not talking to her. So it's all like messy personally for him to go back there. But it's just weird to me that he would have never heard of this at all. I think that given the fact that New York is so big, there's so many hotels there. And also the fact that even though there has been many deaths at this place, it seems like at least as far as the current management is concerned, they don't want people really poking their nose around there. They don't want people staying in the room and they don't want unwanted publicity. This is a a fairly well-off hotel. I mean, they're at 90% capacity at all times. That's pretty normal for a hotel. Yeah, but what I'm saying is they're not struggling by any means. No. And And why rock the boat? If they don't need publicity and they don't need and to lose uh to lose uh, patronage in a very competitive market then what there's literally nothing for them to gain by talking about this story some information exists though because michael does his library scene with mm-hmm, microfiche yeah he's scrolling he's hunting for clues oh i love that sound i love that sound of scrolling it's flipping through real fast there's so much information racing in from your eyes from the annals of history yeah mm. I love it. Yeah, I know you do. <laughs> we still have to go on that microfiche date. Yeah, we will. Um, he finds stories, you know, and he's got some ammo. When he goes in and meets with Gerald Olin, the manager, played by Samuel L. Jackson, or Samuel Leroy Jackson. <laughs> I can't. I, I hear Leroy Jenkins in my head so bad. There's got to, that's got to exist on YouTube. I gotta go I'm sure Leroy it. Jenkins is thrilled to hear that, that someone still remembers that fucking meme. How can you not? How can you not, really? But he goes to him with like, yeah, these four people died while I've worked here. And then Michael starts rhyming off more people that have died, thinking he's king shit because he did all this microfiche and he found like 10 other dead guys. Yeah. But it turns out it's a way higher body count than that. Oh, yeah. We're at like 50, 56, 57, something 56, like that. 56, this room fucking eats people. Yeah, it's it's pretty intense. The reason why that the number is so much larger and that it's not in all the papers is because of the fact that a lot of those deaths were deemed natural causes. Yeah, like 22 natural deaths apparently mm-hmm. and a whole bunch of suicide. Yeah, and stuff like that doesn't always make it into the newspaper because it's not always news making up until recently no one uh, liked to report suicides and when i went to j school the first time around it was absolutely like, the first time i was looking into communications and in schooling into graphic design i looked into taking journalism and that was one of the things in their texts where you do not write about suicide even if the family were to say i want you to do a profile i want this in the obituary it just didn't that word didn't appear in newspapers and then flash forward like 20 years and we loosen up a little bit about it because it's finally being realized that if you write about suicide or say suicide, people don't get inspired to commit suicide. It's not mm-hmm. how it works. And then when I was in school, most recently, there's like still there were still guidelines about things you could and couldn't say. 
and things you had to keep out and repress for the family and things like that. There were still a little more rules. But in the last, like, you know, five, six years, especially with the rise of suicide due to bullying, all those rules have kind of gone out the window. Out the hotel room window, oh. as it were. <laughs> because we know that it doesn't inspire other suicides. And it's so much better to open a dialogue about this. But we're still back in a time where this information was repressed. So yeah, those suicides wouldn't have even been fucking mentioned. This scene between Sam Jackson and John Cusack is extremely strong. You have two veteran actors in a room together, staring each other down, acting. Dialed into their characters, we have ballsy writer seeking the truth. Yeah, and you have Sam Jackson in a very, uh, I want to say, not repressed role. Very buttoned down, though. But he's, uh, he's, he's, the, he's an affluent um, hotel manager. He's in, what's, what do you call that? He's in the hospitality industry. So he has this smile. So I, can, I, can I interest you in this uh, very expensive drink? Can I interest you in, we've upgraded you to a suite. Like, he's trying everything to be calm, to be pleasant, to listen to what his clients or, or customer is saying, but also trying to be very firm and dissuade him from taking the room 1408. Even when Sam Jackson's character is getting down to brass tacks and saying, fine, do you want to know what actually happens in this room? Gives them all the, the, the information, all these uh, reports, these police reports about deaths and stuff like that, complete with very gruesome photos. Um, he's even still not that Sam Jackson where you're, you know, it's like, ah, motherfucker this and motherfucker. He's not. He's, I don't think he's this motherfucker at once. Yeah, he, he says fucking. He, he yeah. And, and, and even that is the most Sam Jackson-y role. But the rest of it, he's not doing that thing that you kind of expect out of a Sam Jackson. And I love it. Because I guess one of the things people forget about Sam Jackson, he's a very, very talented actor. and He's and as prolific as Stephen King is. Yeah. He's had, he has a large body of work. Yeah, hundreds of different types of roles in all kinds of different movies. People tend to, to remember Sam Jackson in some of his more bombastic roles. I mean, obviously, you know, when the guy's acting big, he acts very big and everyone pays attention. But a movie like this that is asking him to rein it in and he does it flawlessly. Yeah. I completely believe this character. It's authentic to me. Um, and he doesn't come off as Sam Jackson creepy where I think he's up to something. And I thought... He's when very he sincere. And there's even parts like where he's still keeping this like gold level customer service tone with this gentleman. Mm -hmm. Telling him about all the death that has happened. This room basically eats people. Is the way I keep thinking of it because that's just what it fucking does. And then even turning on him and being like, I know where you fucking come from and what you're like. I've read all your books. Mm -hmm. And he's doing it in still a very gold standard customer service mm -hmm. way. Even when Sam Jackson finally relents, there's nothing that he can say or do. And, he, and he's hoping that by giving John Cusack all the information that he has, all available information. And an $800 bottle of cognac. And an, a, yeah, yeah, cognac. Very, very, very nice. He, he's just trying to dissuade him. Cusack thinks that it's a fucking bit. He thinks that he thinks that he's 
trying to you know he's a snake trying oil to get him salesman. scared yeah yeah because because he says like you're gonna i'm gonna here's what's gonna happen i'm gonna go into the room you're going to let me and i'm gonna write about it and then your uh, patronage is gonna go up 50 percent. sam jackson was like we don't need a bump in our patronage he's like it's not about that he's and i don't he, care about you yeah. i don't care about the hotel yeah he's like i don't want to clean up the mess it's because it will be a mess you are going to die in this place. This is an evil room. And the only thing that I can think about how to keep people from dying in it is to keep people out of it. And I love the scene, even just talking about his gold standard customer service, as when they're going up finally to room 1408. Of course, it's actually the 13th floor, but you know, hotels and uh, apartment buildings don't have the 13th floor for superstitious. This is uh, weird. John Cusack's like, I, I'm just going to do this because like, Ghoulies and ghostlies and long-legged beasties do not exist. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. um, and, and 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 Cusack is is basically uh, still under the impression that this is a there's a spirit, there's a phantom, there's something in here. And Sam Jackson's like, no. He, he says it's an evil fucking room, which is the most like I said, Sam Jackson line he has. When they're going upstairs, he says. So you guys never go into this room. And because we know this because Sam Jackson basically says nobody goes into this room. And he says, like, so what? Like, the sheets are going to be filthy and blah, blah, blah. I love his Sam Jackson sort of arched eyebrow head tilt towards John Cusack. Almost like, please, sir. Like, just that attitude. What do you expect of me and my hotel? This is my house. Of course we clean my house. Yeah, he's like, once a month. We go down, we do a light turnover, and there's two maids. I supervise. The door is never closed. There's all of these checks and balances that he does. But yeah, we clean the fucking room. Yeah, what we're do not, you expect? We're not monsters here. <laughs> Which is like normal. There's lots of unused rooms in some hotels for one reason or another. Sometimes there's one by the garbage chute that smells too strongly of garbage and they don't want to have to put up with people complaining. It's not about that they don't want people to smell garbage because if they didn't give a fucking shit about you and your nose, they would just rent you the room because they want to make money. But if they're just tired of fucking people complaining that's by the garbage chute, they don't rent out that room and it gets a light once a month that's not abnormal at all mm -hmm. at all or something that is a sustained horrible water damage and it's like eh, we'll wait till we have way more water damage and then we call in the contractors at that point or we'll wait till we get them in here to renovate these rooms and then we'll have them do this for, for now this room's out of order for like the next year mm -hmm. it, it does happen it's definitely happened so it's not abnormal but what's abnormal is that no one has lasted an hour in this room, apparently. The maids barely last 10 because the one time that a maid got locked in the bathroom for not even five minutes, she gouged her own eye out. Mm -hmm. So That's the thing. When people, are, if you're wondering, uh, listeners, how do people die in this room, you name it. But it seems to be much like Oculus, yeah. self-inflicted. People are either jumping from the windows. One guy drowned in his soup. Uh, some people are sliding, uh, slicing their own throats, slicing uh, their own wrists. Uh, like I said, it's awesome. You name it, but it seems to be all self-inflicted. It's not like someone comes in and there's like a knife in their back. It's just people seem to be committing suicide. They go fucking crazy because it's an evil fucking room. I love it. I totally love it because... We've been convinced by Samuel L. Jackson, of all people, that this room is fucking evil and no mm -hmm. one should ever go in there. And we're also convinced by John Cusack that he'll be fine because he's mm -hmm. gone into millions of these places and it's all just fucking lark. And 
then we've seen Oculus. So we know how crazy an evil fucking thing can make you be. Because mm-hmm. that was the same sort of thing in Oculus as well. Um, but John Cusack goes in there and then it's sort of like the mood shifts in a way because he just does all the things that you do in a hotel room when you go in. He checks this fucking mattress. He checks the closet, counts mm-hmm. the hangers, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. All those like normal things. Mm-hmm. They use a device in this movie uh, to allow John Cusack to talk even though there's nobody else in the room. He's speaking into a tape recorder, which is very common, you know, if you're trying to remember shit that you're saying. I guess I've never really done it. but Diane, you're going to have to... Give me the name of these trees, majestic trees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Stuff. <laughs> I love it because I actually have a recorder like that. I have a smaller recorder, a lot like that. I use my phone a lot of the times. I've like writers record stuff. I've walked around hotel rooms while I'm cleaning them with a recorder in my pocket, recording thoughts for upcoming work because it's not you know unheard of for a writer to walk around recording themselves talk in a hotel room at that so it works really well and really believably and for what he's doing reporting on that particular hotel room i love it and it's an excellent device because otherwise yeah who would he be talking to exactly um you know at first uh, he's very unimpressed he's unimpressed with the room he it's ordinary it's very ordinary hotel ordinary complete with tacky wallpaper and uninspired uninspired art on the walls that he describes for his book, which helps for us because it also helps us remember what shit looked like later on when things change. Because they do. But they've got chocolate on the pillows, Wes, and uh, neatly folded toilet paper. That's cool. That's a nice little touch. I like that. Interesting how they did it like right behind his back while he was standing in the room, though. It is weird. And he tries to figure out exactly how they did it. He was looking out the window and then he looks back. There's chocolates on his bed. And he pulled, he used some toilet paper and then it's folded again. So he's trying to think that he's still operating under the impression that they're trying to trick him. Because even in his recording, he was like, oh, that hotel manager, he got me. He was really convincing. But this is just a boring old room, just like every other room I've ever stayed in. What's the first point that the room convinces him they're not fucking around? The hand. Is it just because he's hurt or is it because he's scared? Do you think it's a combination of two? He, so he has become rattled by the radio coming out. and The Carpenters. The Carpenters, yeah, yeah, the Carpenters. And that turns on by itself. It could have just been an alarm. There's rational explanations for everything that's happened. Well, yeah, he's been told that the, no one lasts an hour in the room. The we've only just begun the song where the carpenters comes on and the clock starts to count down one hour. Mm-hmm. So he's like, aha, clever, clever. So all these little things keep happening. The room is mm-hmm. and so, being spooky. So yes, initially uh, when he calls and they ask if he wants to check out, he's like, no, I don't want to check out. He's like, I want someone to fix the thermostat here. Uh, and he, he's not convinced that anything really Terrible has gone on. He's admitting that there there's weird things. There's things that are rattling him, but he's just getting rattled, and 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 he's even having to reaffirm with himself, like this is the job. You do this job. You're just getting rattled for no reason. Calm the fuck down. It's the, the moment where he's in absolute distress, and I agree that it is probably more the fact that he's bleeding quite profusely from this uh, window that has dropped on his hand. It's probably more to do with the fact that he's injured like that. That That's why he initially, first initially, wants to check out of the room. Because when the maintenance guy shows up, 
and uh, won't go into the room. That's a nice effect too, right? Yeah. And and shows him how to fix it. Uh, and and the thermostat's fine, and he's fine, and everything's fine. And so all that weird stuff seems to fall away, especially when he sees another human being. But then once that door closes, that's the last person he's really ever going to see. He gets locked into the room, though, when he finally decides he needs the fuck out. That's after. absolutely true. He, yeah. he, he, it's got an old timey. So magna locks don't work on this Electronics room. Electronics don't work. Yeah. So they, he has to uh, use an old style, like fucking skull and bones key, like one of those things. And it breaks off. It breaks off into the lock. And my he, favorite thing is that not only does the key break off, something or someone pulls the shaft of the key through the other side of the keyhole so yeah like i thought I, th- I thought if this was like a darker movie or a shorter movie and he looked his eye into the keyhole i thought that fucking key was gonna fucking shoot take one eye out That'd yeah i try always terrifies me so like yeah, yeah so you're like oh don't I like don't that. do that and the amount of times he looks through the key or the peephole as well the amount of times he looks through the peephole as well i'm like he's gonna get something in the eye just because i kind of want him to get something in the eye for horrible terrible reasons because i'm a horrible terrible person Oh, there's that. Uh, I like you anyway. Now, so he cannot get out, and he's pissed. Mm-hmm. He's he's trying to to call, but it's not really helping. No, it's sort of like making a phone call on Oculus. I'm gonna yeah. keep bringing this back to Oculus, even though this is the far superior movie in the older movie. Um, I uh, like it better. I will I will t- I will say that this is a superior movie to Oculus, but they're not. But I but I I like Oculus, but I think what Oculus has going against it versus 1408 is you have veteran actors in 1408 you have yeah. better actors better like, actors and a slightly tighter story a little more believable story uh-huh. I, I think and it's like it Belie- does speak to people better be- believable in its lack of backstory yeah what we know about this room is that it exists what we know about this hotel is that it exists mm-hmm. There is no speculation whatsoever about what it is. It is an, it's an Sam, evil fucking room. Sam Jackson's line of it's an evil fucking room is as informative as it is dismissive. It is to inform the character and us, the audience. It is what it is. Stephen King is a master at that. There's a recent story. I can't remember the name of where there's a car that eats people. He's got all sorts of ghoulies ghosties and long-legged beasties that exist for what reason who fucking knows Mm -hmm. no one knows all sorts of like inanimate objects that are here to fuck people up for Mm -hmm. what reason nobody knows where they come from don't know the the random malevolence of something inanimate has always fascinated me i love things evil for the sake of evil some of my favorite characters in film and literature are evil for the sake of being evil Mm-hmm. Going all the way back to Shakespearean with Iago and stuff like that, like like when you just have these things or people that exist to be just fucking bad, it's great because it speaks to our fears of random acts against us that have no cause or reason. It also opens it up too, because this room could be as evil as it wants. It can move mm-hmm. as fast or slow as it likes. Yeah. It can do pretty much fucking anything. And we're, we're, we get pretty used to the idea that it is going to fuck with this guy. It's going to fuck with his head. It's going to oh, fuck yeah. with the time, space, temperature, not yeah. just the thermostat. Like, it's going to fuck with fucking everything, which reminds me a little bit of the movie House that we just covered. And I think mm-hmm. as a kid, 
once house once the house started being haunted because it is the house that is feeding all of this all of these different beasts that end up in there or it's a gateway of some sort something like that i think that this is what i wanted as an end game it was scary enough when i was a kid and it's still a fun movie now yeah but i think even when i was a kid i was slightly disappointed that it wasn't 1408 yeah I mean, we talked about the speed in which the room does this. Now, there are reports that people don't last five minutes. We know this because Sam Jackson's telling us. Um, this seems to be an understanding that John Cusack is not going anywhere. And even though he gets freaked out and he's locked in the room, he rallies himself and is now resolved he is going to stay to do what? To keep doing what he's doing, reporting, trying to get his story out, trying to make sure that this is not all in vain. While the, ha- while the room is slowly fucking with him because he bangs his hand. It's bleeding like in a horror movie. So it's like bleeding way more than <laughs> I feel it would by just having like, I believe me, I don't doubt for a second that having a, a, a window drop on your hand, it's going to hurt, but it's not, you're not going to be gushing blood like that. It's, there's not enough weight. There's not enough speed. There's not enough momentum. There's nothing to make your hand like gush blood like that. It doesn't matter. It's a movie. So... He goes into the bathroom, the sink fucking goes out of control, and it's boiling hot water. It's just fucking with him. It's There's... totally... It's also stuff at that point that you can pass off as just bad luck and coincidence, yeah. right? But So when he realizes like he's trapped, trapped, trapped in the room, he goes to the window to try and Harold's help. Because no one on the other end of the phone is helping him. The door won't open. He's trapped. No one can hear him when he's screaming through the walls. So he starts screaming to the New York City streets. Mm-hmm. Big help there. Because he loses... Uh... And there was a point where he loses his hearing briefly. Yeah. Kind of a vertigo problem, too. Yeah. Yeah, the room spins. They use a fisheye lens in a lot of this. A very subtle Mm -hmm. fisheye lens. And in photography, if you're without uh, any lens but a fisheye lens, you can take a nice portrait of somebody that still has a flat aspect if you center it. So they're using probably an even larger lens and cropping it in so that just the edges, everything looks a little skewed and distorted. So when his hearing goes, you get a lot of this sense of imbalance. Not only his agitation, but visually and now audibly, mm-hmm. his like blood pressure has risen. It sounds like that's what it sounds like when your blood pressure has risen to a scary degree. You, you can't hear anything but that horrible whining. Um, so he's like out the window screaming and yelling. And then across the way, he sees somebody. So he's yelling at them like, I'm at the Dolphin Hotel. Call the police police he's elevated this to police wes yeah like he's that scared this room has freaked about that much and the guy across the street in the window who's sitting in a chair gets up and comes to his window and he starts waving his arms and then john cusack realizes that it's a mirror image of him it's him in the other room he's dressed differently because he grabs a lamp and lights his own face Mm -hmm. and so does the other guy because now he's a mirror image and it's him yay i'm finally freaked out yeah, especially since when he's staring at it, someone comes up behind his doppelganger, doppelganger yeah. and and he almost motions to say, look out. But then when he looks out of the corner of his eye, that person is in the room with him and takes a swing at him. Looks like fucking Larry from the Three Stooges. And then all of a sudden, he flings himself back to the wall into the corner to like like to fucking shield himself with his arms and, and just get away because he's scared nothing's there nothing's there at all yeah that mad man with a hammer didn't exist yeah terrifying absolutely um 
the, the, the room will mess with him in, in various different ways. One of the ways is that he will soon see uh, apparitions, we'll call them, reflections of people who have killed themselves previously in this room. The way what, ghosts are on reenactments on the History Channel. Yeah, basically. Uh, looking kind of distorted, like they're coming from like a 1950s TV. Um, that's how you know they're old-timey. <laughs> and what are they doing? Jumping uh, out the window. Yeah. I think it's kind of hilarious, and I wanted to see more of them in a way. Like you could just see scowns and scowns of people all through mm-hmm. history jumping out windows. It's echoes. It's reflections of what has happened in this room. It's it's understood at this point that if you die in this room, the, uh, whatever is left of you will stay here. Um, He's gone over the room like some people actually do in hotel rooms with a UV light. And he didn't spray anything to bring up the blood, but there was lots of blood. And he recognized mm-hmm. some of those blood stains. So he has an idea of who these people are and how they died from the package that he was given by Olin that has all of this and the research he's done. So seeing them triple freaks him out because mm-hmm. in a way you're kind of like, finally, he's in a haunted room. This is what he's always wanted. Mm-hmm. It's got everything. It's got hammer-wielding madman apparitions. It's attacked him. The room has physically attacked him. He's wounded. Like, now he's got ghosts. Mm-hmm. Everything. It's true. When he stops uh, blacklighting everything and he starts going back to trying to record, uh, the TV blurts on, and then we're treated with a, a very RoboCop-esque uh, flashback of his family life. Now, we do know that he's estranged from his wife. We would assume that he would be divorced. However, we learn that that's not entirely accurate. Um it's it's very much that scene where you're looking at happier times it's his wife it's his daughter everyone's happy it's it's like a weekend you know what i'm saying it's one of those things it's almost like uh it's it's almost like the exact same scene uh from last man on earth where vincent price is watching these old film reels of you know happier family life before the world got taken over by vampires but Instead, he doesn't have like a very emotional reaction, only sort of reaching out to the television. That is going to be interrupted by uh, the radio again going off. And and then the the images disappear. But again, you can see that the the room is very much capable of uh, reading his thoughts, knowing what would be deep in his psyche that would be the most traumatic for it. It's not enough that this room is going to try to injure you and... And, and that's what's going to kill you. This room is looking for those cracks in his psyche that it can twist the knife just so to make John Cusack kill himself or to be at the brink of despair and even more susceptible to the, to the room. That is what it seems to be doing. And the more freaked out he gets, the more disoriented he gets, the more he easily slips into these hallucinations. This comes to a head in one scene where he is in a hospital now with his, who we could assume is his father. It is his father, uh, who seems to be suffering from uh, the late later stages of Alzheimer's. Doesn't really seem to understand where he is, what's going on. He tries to talk with his father as if his father's really there he's gone like he's lost it like he's he is 
completely slipped into the fantasy that this room has given him in this moment because it's so disorienting and things are coming in so vivid, crisp, and real. Where I'm, I'm always questioning scenes like this, like how could this person believe this? They just mm-hmm. had all of these things happen. They've been run through a gamut of emotions by this haunted thing. They know it's not all real and he's already thrown out lines like, okay, you got me, you got me, I'm scared. Okay, mm-hmm. let me go. And like, he knows where he is, but then with the apparition of his father being so vivid, mm-hmm. um, you did sort of convince me. I, I, I likened it to when you're having a dream and and impossible things are happening, but your brain is is not really cognitive of the fact that it's a dream, unless you're lucid dreaming. But uh, and, and 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 you can just tell in this moment he's just swept up in it. Yeah. And and so you could forgive him for at the very least losing his senses until his father uh, starts speaking to him, and it's very like. In, in he has him. one line, and it's "Where you are, I was; where I am, you will be." Mm-hmm. Heavy duty shit. Yeah. Uh, actually, that line is used in one of the alternate endings that never got made or didn't wasn't popularized and wasn't on any of the DVDs, director's cuts, theatrical. Um, it's this disembodied voice. That line comes back to haunt him later on at the very end, uh, but not in the end that we saw. Because mm-hmm. there's like multiple endings of this. Choose your own adventure. Almost. Yeah, we'll go on with the choose your own adventure when we get to the end that we ended up seeing. I will let anyone know, and anyone that's seen this will know the differences between them all. Or you can go on to your friendly neighborhood Wikipedia and read about them. Uh, this was the di- the director's cut because we get a little more gore, a couple titties. Stuff like that, mm-hmm. little extra dead daughter stuff and all that shit. Mm-hmm. So we were, we were lucky that way, and we end up with my second favorite ending. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so with this apparition of his father, he's gone through like fear, disgust, agitation, uh, totally being disoriented, um, sorrow, being dragged back into happier times with his family, and now this mm-hmm. very heavy scene with his father where. I'm convinced that this relationship with his father was very, very hard and abusive and highly emotional. Yeah. So he not only wants the fuck out of this room, he wanted the fuck out of this room a while ago, but he needs to get the fuck out of this room now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, his first gut reaction is to go out the window. Now this window has a fairly decent ledge on it, but I mean, he's 13 stories up. And nothing, nothing waiting for him off that ledge except a very busy New York street. He is trying to make it to the neighboring, well, um, neighboring room. Yeah, he's used the fire escape map on the door, which is always helpful. This is me in video games. You know? Yeah, yeah. I'm not a great map reader, so it may as well be in Sanskrit. <laughs> now. Drawn by Asher, so like make no fucking sense to you. But he's like, you know, I'll just go this way. It's this. It should be this many steps from window to window. This is how far it is from these windows. It's how far it is from these windows. Got it. Plan. Yeah. Ledge is wide. I'll be good. Which freaks me out because like I balance problems. I have horrible vertigo. I cannot. I could not. I don't like this scene whatsoever. And especially that part where you slipped. You made an. You made a, an utterance of of some sort. Yes. Yes. And I did have a very animal reaction. Um. Now, of course, we can understand that a room that is able to put images in your mind, that's able to trick you into doing things, is also able to trick you into thinking that you're making progress along this wall when you're not. This, it seems to be creating an endless brick wall 
that is extremely dangerous for him to travel across and there is no other window magically there is no other window on this side of the building whatsoever except back into his hotel bummer (laughs) so where do you go back into the fucking room Mm -hmm. i think that one of the things that you could say from an outside observation especially when we're going to get to the next time where he legitimately tries to get out of the hotel is the ho- like the room is ex- is explicitly trying to make you come back to it even when you're out of it. So stop doing what the room is suggesting you're doing it because I guarantee you that if he went kept going further and further, I would assume the power of the room would diminish. Would diminish and he would be back to where he needed to be. Uh the next time he tries to escape the room now every time he goes back into the room he tries to reorient himself he'll have bouts of frustration the room will be mocking him there'll be more attacks by um, apparitions and and shit like that constantly and of course being reminded of uh, his daughter he also thinks that he might be being watched he's being really paranoid he thinks that has his drink been spiked has the chocolate been spiked who's watching me there's someone up in the vents that i think there's a camera up there like he's he's becoming like a chittering paranoid weirdo yeah which is awesome and and, and, and you look at it, it like the the countdown it's been like 15 minutes yeah that's all it took it really only took about six minutes before he started being like okay you got me i want out. i'm yeah, done i here. want out of the room i'm done we had a conversation while we're watching this about like okay so if this room can kill people in five minutes or have them at least stab their eye out or whatever why is it keeping him here with for what seems like so long is is it playing with him is it trying to feed him what he's always been after is it trying to like flex its muscle a little is it bored does it hate him that much or is it taking this much to get him where it needs him to be i think he went in there um i think if for for example if, if if someone who worked at the hotel were to have died within these walls within five minutes I think that the room's attitude might be, you've shown me proper deference, so I will kill you quick, or I will maim you quick. This guy comes in with this level of obstinance where the room almost seems insulted by it. Mm. Oh, you've seen everything. Oh, you don't believe in me. Oh, you don't like my paintings. Go fuck yourself. And so I will slowly whittle you down. And I think it kind of comes from that sort of place. If this room is purely and simply evil, you can attribute all kinds of darkness uh, uh, to it, and and even uh, like even try to assume that the, the the room is a little Machiavellian in its methods. Oh yeah, right. Oh yeah, it's like the ultimate escape room, really, truly, because yeah. like we're surrounded by about four or five escape rooms. I don't even. I'm not. Lockdown is down there. Escape you can throw a rock and hit an escape room from here. Like he's not even kidding. Yeah, like, it, yeah, it's like literally. I don't even have a very good arm, and I could definitely hit escape room from here. And lockdown, I don't know. You could probably, if you really try to get your 99 mile an hour fastball going down the street, you just throw my fucking beefy arms and just there you go. If we had a small trebuchet, we could definitely hit the one downtown. <laughs> like, there are we're surrounded by them. So, this is like the ultimate fucking escape room, mm-hmm. truly. Mm-hmm. Um, he does try to escape again. He does. He goes up into the vents. This is really interesting. Now, I wanted to ask you this. I didn't ask when we were going because I was like, I'm going to save this for the show. While he's crawling, he finally gets into the vents. 
I always love when when air when uh, air vents are big enough for people to go inside of them. Yeah, I love every movie with an air vent or a laundry chute. I like laundry. Yeah, I love too. that type of shit. It's fucking great because I'm always like, anytime I'm like anywhere for like work or or uh, in in building, and I see like air ducts and stuff like that, I'm like, person couldn't fucking fit in there, or there's no way that that would support my weight. That would come crashing fucking down. This is big enough for him to crawl through. While he's trying to crawl through to get out of here, um. He sees there's there's been a, a neighbor woman crying, uh, a baby crying this entire time. One time the crying becomes so loud it overwhelms his ears, which is, I'm assuming is what you hear every time a child speaks. Um, but much, that's accurate. <laughs> but uh, this is like a deafening cry that makes him hold his head. It goes away. Um, he's seen hallucinations. We know that um, at this point his daughter uh, was terminally ill. We know that it was probably a cancer, mm-hmm. leukemia or something like that. Um, we know that we can probably infer from his broken life that we see that he's single. He's he's an author on his own. We can probably tell that it didn't end well. Um, so when we see who's in the neighboring room, it seems to be... It's his wife. It's his young wife yeah. holding a, a baby. And that baby would be his daughter he hears his own voice coming from the room, uh, a, a window of his family life. And she looks up into the, it's very creepy, looks directly up into the vent right at him, seeing him in there. He fucking books it. Like, who wouldn't? I'm like, I'm out of here. Which is weird, because how many times have you been like, in a room or whatever, and you think you hear something in a vent or whatever, and you look up and it's nothing, and you look away? Because that's probably what she did if you would... If you if these things actually did happen and in the past they were having an argument, she had the baby and mm-hmm. she thought she heard noise, looked up, nothing, looked away, like that exactly could have happened. So mm-hmm. that's like triple creepy. He actually crawls over another vent and gets a, a vision of his father and him he, having an argument. Yeah, yeah. Um, we these know, vents are big. Man. These vents are big and they and uh, their uh, their uh, reach for the psyche is broad because. We know that what he is witnessing now is some painful moments in his life where his daughter unfortunately dies. And they have him, he is torn up about it, but he's so angry. He's so angry at the at the injustice of this death, this random death of his daughter where it's like, you get cancer, you're dying, you never make it to adulthood. And how unfair that would seem as a father. And the fact that they, in his estimation, perhaps coddled her to make her feel better. You're going to be fine. You're going to grow old. Uh, there's a wonderful place waiting for everyone who dies. I was dies. talking about heaven and God and uh, all your family will be there. And Yeah, there, there's that type of sentiment. Which is very, like, when, when you're faced with the unfortunate uh, reality of a child that might not make it, what can you do but just try to make them feel better? I mean, there's, and, and some people might disagree with that. I don't, I think like if, if, and, and his wife painfully reminds him, they made her feel better. His attitude was like, if we told, if we were straight with her, if we didn't fill her head with fantasy, would she, if we, we needed to teach her to fight, to fight, to stay alive, not to succumb to her illness. That's where the disconnect seems to lie. He blames himself for going along with what his wife said and for, in some twisted way perhaps blames her. Now, this is one of those examples where the death of a child, the center won't hold. 
they break up. Yeah. And it's not even like, he really has this moment of like, I'm going out for cigarettes. And I, in my head, I'm like, that was probably the last thing he ever said to her. He's like, I'm going out for... That's probably exactly right. Because they don't really get into exactly when he left or how they split up. Yeah, or what the because, details of because all that was. But... Later on, when, we've, when, we, uh, when they speak to each other, she doesn't even... They're not divorced, separated. He left. There was no proceedings whatsoever. Yeah, and she hadn't talked to him for a year. Yeah. Um, His father is in the same boat saying, trying to make her understand that, like, she lost a kid too. You need to understand that you need each other now more than ever. And he finds that ridiculous coming from his father, you know, based on this past that we're not giving any information about. But you can probably, perhaps the idea of, Togetherness and family and love and support, that probably seems laughable to John Cusack's character coming from his father who did whatever. Well, there's his father gives him a shove and he's like, don't you lay your hands on me, old man. Like, yeah. what the fuck? What? Old habits die hard, eh? Mm-hmm. So that's what leads me to believe that he was abused. Physically. Yeah, which is fair, which is a fair assumption. Yeah. Uh, and I think you're probably right. And this is all happening while he's in the vent. <laughs> this is all happening while he's in the vent. And then this is the thing that I wanted to ask you about. Comes across... A very decomposed body. Not so decomposed that it's like skeletal, but it's been there for a bit. And it's kind of the decomposed body you would expect of somebody getting trapped in a vent and having all that nice warm climate control air rushing over your corpse for so long that you're nice and mummified. You're nice and mummified. Let me ask you this. Hmm. Is that body really there? Because if it's there, the smell of, let's conservatively say, 150 pounds of rotten meat, rotten human meat. In the fucking air ducts, what would that... Do you think it's possible that that could have just gone... Because that would go everywhere. That wouldn't just be limited to... Well, it's... Yeah, you're like a forced air system. So it's going to be circulating amongst all of the rooms, the entire floor, if not the entire building. That's what I'm saying. Unless it's one of those little more close things that is only for the floor or it could be only for the wings it's a massive fucking hotel even when he's walking from the elevator to his room at the beginning it like seems to take forever it's almost like stanley hotel or not stanley hotel overlook hotel overlook. style where danny drives this mobius strip that does not exist <laughs> um he walks almost a path like that mm-hmm. uh getting to the fucking room so it is just a really big hotel so it could be only that wing or it could have been something like there's something in the vent they tried to get at it, couldn't get at it, had to leave it rot there, shut down that wing for a while till whatever it is. Probably assuming it's a squirrel, a raccoon, a bird, something died there. And they'll just like let it rot out and then it'll it'll stop smelling. Uh, thinking it's like a small animal or whatever that, well, what are they going to do? Uh, it could be something like that. Yeah, it would probably stink. But then you get something like a Lisa lamb in the water system of the Cecil Hotel. Yeah. And people drank dead body water for two weeks and didn't really notice. And it was starting to dissipate. The water wasn't going to get any worse. I think she would have just rotted out and evaporated. Mm-hmm. Especially if that tank would have emptied. Like, I'm not sure how that water system works. But if that reservoir would have emptied at any time, it would have dried out and not really flavored or colored the water any further. So maybe, I don't know how long it would have taken to reach that state, especially in the environment that it's in to dry out the body quite quickly Mm -hmm. that smell might have not been as noticeable at all it is true i was thinking about like the the lisa land thing because maybe it's an outlet as well what if it's like the the forced air comes in through the floor vents 
and he's in the ceiling vent, so maybe it just mm-hmm. goes out street level. So all this dead body stink just went out there. Mm-hmm. It's possible that they don't even know that that body's in that. Could very well be. Because it would have been one of those instances where someone came into the hotel. But, but but basically what we are led to believe at this point is this is another. Someone else had this exact idea. Yeah, someone tried to crawl across a ledge where Wes reminds us that the jumpers, quote unquote, the jumpers. must have been people just trying to get out. Yeah. So maybe dead bodies in the vents weren't chasing after Santa's little helper. They were <laughs> trying to escape the room. Yeah. And got stuck in there. I don't know why he's wearing sunglasses. That's kind of cool. He's like a fucking... yeah. Probably there's probably practical reasons why he's... patrol cop or something. <laughs> probably practical reasons like well we don't want to. He's been there so long that he would have no eyes. So we don't want to like try to figure that out makeup wise. Put sunglasses on him. It's fine. Yeah. So yeah. basically, what happens is is inside of this, uh, uh, Michael is subjected to another hallucination. This guy springs to life and is now very quickly in and what i would say is the most straight up old school like the fucking monster in the vent horror thing that happens in this flick is just like this fucking zombie basically chasing him throughout the air ducts and he goes he twists and he turns and he goes all over the place and to the point where i'm thinking how's he even gonna get back to his what why does he keep skipping all of these lower vents and why is he going back to his room? Because they go into, like, the fucking Scrooge Christmas past shit. Who wants to go into there? Fuck that. I challenge the room. I'd be like, fine. I'm going to go through this vent and see where I end up. And if I end up in the 80s when my... When, like sliders? Yeah, like sliders. Except this... It's like, it's just like Earth, except the dinosaurs never went extinct. Fine. I challenge you. I challenge you, hotel. I think that he's getting too uh, tricked by the hotel, even at this point. Um, but at the same time, it makes for good cinema. He kicks the zombie in the head, breaks his head apart. It's really, really cool. And then when he drops down, he delivers the one, what I would say, straight up comedic line in this movie is. Where he's like, oh, good to be back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's good. This is fine. <laughs> like, because he's this like. This is much better than that. Yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, he is dealt with at this point, fucking the, the sprinklers have gone off. Water is all over the place. It's just fucking crazy. Now when he's back into the room, he's just like, I need a drink. And he's going into this refrigerator trying to find shit and like miniature Sam Jackson is in there. <laughs> Giving him a fucking speech yeah. about the room, basically, and how he's trapped, why he's trapped. And this is what you wanted, isn't it? Yeah. One of the things that you learn, that you tend to learn from uh, Michael, John Cusack's character, is the fact that one of the reasons why he might be so hell-bent on these haunted places and disproving them, even though it doesn't really seem like he's trying to disprove them, but he seems to have no problem mocking these stories at this point, is because of the fact that it takes people's hope away from an afterlife, which is what Sam Jackson suggests, is that what people are looking for is something, some shred of evidence that life exists after death. Because they're so afraid of it. And it can give them a little bit of hope. The same hope that his daughter had. That in his estimation was one of the reasons why she stopped fighting. So perhaps even subconsciously, he is trying to make sure that he can dash that hope from as many people as he can. Not to be shitty about it, but just to, this is the way the world works. 
There is no afterlife. There is no God. There is no heaven. You die. You rot in the ground. End a fucking story. Fight for the life you have now. It's not the worst message in the world, but the room is challenging that. And by the room's very existence, it puts chaffed in that theory. Mm-hmm. Which leads to my favorite Nicolas Cage freakout scene ever, where he destroys the fuck out of that fridge, and we realize Samuel L. Jackson isn't in the fridge, and they're not having this conversation at all. And it's room fucking with him again. He's gone completely cuckoo bananas, and he fucking tears that fridge up like motherfuck. <laughs> Nicolas Cage probably watched this scene and went, yes, perfect, my son. He's like, this is finally the exact type of energy you need for this scene, guys. Yeah. No, it's crazy because when you said Nicolas Cage, I laughed. I was, oh my God, you're so right. This is totally piss blood levels of a performance. All he needed to do is go through the alphabet. That would be awesome. It was fucking ridiculous. Yeah. But I, it was a really great scene and it's the height of John Cusack's frustration. Yeah. This is where he's still... And this is like John Cusack. This is not a very physical actor in any role I can really think of. He's super physical. Um, nah. Not nah. at all, no. And this is probably the most physical you, that we've seen him ever. And I'm sure he did all his own stunts. I'm sure he fell out of that vent mm-hmm. just fine. All by it must have been really fucking cool idea for him as an actor when, when, when someone comes up to you and says, like, do you want to do this movie? Look, man, there's some special effects in it, but 90% of the movie... It's no bullshit. It's no fucking around. You are just like, all we want you to do is act. Just act in a room. React to things. What do you say? It, it would be, it would be really, it might be really refreshing for an actor to just say, yeah, yeah. That's the dead opposite of something like, say, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, where it's sort of like, keep your cool. A lot of fucked up shit's going to happen around you. Your mm-hmm. job in this role is to just keep your cool and anti-act. You're going to be acting very mm-hmm cool and collected throughout mm-hmm. all of this in the face of some pretty fucked up like and hilarious stuff because mm-hmm. I, I love that movie yeah but it's the dead opposite of what we normally see him mm-hmm. do so yeah it would have been a real fun stretch for him i think and he did it amazingly well i think he does really good he's really authentic and con- like really convincing in the role his his level of madness even his even his nicholas cage-esque freak out at the refrigerator it comes at the exact right time in the film. The exact right things have happened. It makes sense for him to get to that fever pitch. And it's not distracting. Whereas, like, I feel, it, you know. Well, it, you're getting that frustrated, too, at that point. Yeah. Because, and, and you start thinking as the audience member, it's like, how is he going to get out of this? Because every venue, he, is, he has tried to claw his way out of the fucking walls at this point. Yeah. He is smashing stuff. He is... He is just fucking the place up as much as humanly possible. Trying to claw his way out of there, basically. And you're like thinking, okay, this is this is a fucking movie and this is our hero and he's got to make it, right? He's mm-hmm. got to make it out, right? Because he can't just die in here. Mm-hmm. I think if, if he would have, why are we going to watch all of this fighting if he's just going to die in here, right? <laughs> I think that's part of that frustration, too, that you're feeling as an audience member where he helps kind of dissipate a little bit of that with his Nicolas Cage freak out because you're like okay he's as frustrated as I feel right now Mm -hmm. and then we get to a place where now the room is just gonna be oh so icy cold it's gonna do whatever the fuck it really wants and if it wants to turn itself into Antarctic it's 
yep, that's what he's going to do. He curls up with his bottle and basically prepares himself to freeze to death. Yeah, it's like fucking... In the tundra. Yeah, it's like Michael J. Fox and Frighteners just like sitting in that freezer and shit. That's, it, yeah. it really reminded me of that. Because like this place is so cold. He Holy even goes fuck. to his thermometer, like to the um, temperature thinger. Yeah, yeah. Thermostat. Thermostat, yeah. And it says minus five. Minus five, yeah. That minus five in American? That would definitely be Fahrenheit. Yeah. So, holy fuck, guys. Yeah. That is cold. He's like turning blue and curled up with like a got icicles on his hair and shit like that. Yeah. And he's been trying to contact his wife via his laptop, his estranged wife. And even though she, she, in what I would say is the most frustrating scene ever, she is more concerned with where have you been this whole time. See, I chalked this up to like, this is why you don't have fucking relationships with people like this. Because she's like, why didn't you ever talk to me? Why didn't you call me? What do you expect? Where are you? Yeah. And it's like, fuck We're... off. Help me, you dumb bitch. Well. um Sorry. It's okay. Um But at the same time, I feel your frustration because this is a dude that is calling you like, like hold over in this dark room with a fucking light on his face telling you send the police i need help this is a matter of life and death please fucking help me and she you're is, in new york why didn't you tell me yeah and it's so dismissive i'm just like okay Fuck. i get it you, you, he's estranged are you separated you don't know you're furious at him you want answers you're at work you're busy i get it but like this guy has been saying several keywords to you help. like help <laughs> police police i'm trapped 1408 um when the laptop because that's when the the sprinklers go on and the laptop gets soaked and you assume it's busted when it's icy cold the laptop comes on again his wife is trying to contact him when he gets back in communication with her he says that he definitely needs her help please help me for the love of god come to 1408 she's like that the police are there they're in 1408 where are you there's no one in 1408 yeah crazy yeah which is like now you're like well guess maybe he will die in here because that's fucked up that or he's on an alternate dimension or maybe he crawled along that ledge a little too far maybe it was the wrong room he dropped down in the vent like something or, gotta be some way. or the police go there he's lying on the floor they're standing over him and they can't see him and he can't see them or the room is fucking with him yeah and yeah. he is in 1408 there's no cops in the way and that's not his wife yeah because that's, could be that's all... the other possibility yeah because the last time we saw that laptop it was soaked and it didn't work yeah. Now all of a sudden it's like fucking minus five degrees in this place and that laptop works all of a sudden. And not only does it work, it works way too well because it's got a second version of him in it that actually overrides him talking to his wife mm -hmm. and tells her to come down herself. Yeah, come here. We need and then gives a really creepy wink. Yeah. It's it's kind of fucked up. So you can't trust the room, you can't trust him, you can't trust the laptop. Yeah. And and this is where we're anything. spitting out into the same level of spin outs that we got from Oculus where it's, it's fucking manipulation within dreamscapes, within fucking hallucinations. You, you don't know what's what. And, and to the point where the point where you're watching this film at this point, And I was like, this room is probably perfectly fine. And he's sitting in the corner right now, just like drooling, out dro of one drooling. Yeah. Like, 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 how, well, what is even I have happening? a theory about that, about what's actually going on. What's actually going on? I will tell you in a little tiny bit, because it's time for all the paintings to come to life and freak out. Because if you thought that this room was fucking freaky and powerful at this point, you ain't seen nothing yet. Mm -hmm. Because all these paintings come to life, and that's where we learn, I guess this is where the guy with the hammer that attacked him in his reflection and in the room 
earlier lives in on the deck of the ship lost at sea in mm-hmm. one of the paintings. The other one is a school maven reading to three demented children as he describes it at yeah. first but then it's like showing titties and stuff Got some titties and dead and... kids and stuff like mm-hmm. it's kind of fucked up and the hunt i don't know it basically turns into like the dogs become look like rabid to yeah. me and, yeah. and they're gonna like fuck you up or something like that. and you can hear like dogs barking and mm-hmm. the horse is coming and like yeah the like the room cracks apart fucking fills with water and he like drowns <laughs> Like it's fucking. This is this it's is almost so, crazy. You were explaining this to somebody and like left out a whole bunch of other preamble, but then just cut to when the paintings freak out. It's like what the yeah. Fuck? They're like basically he's in this hotel room that fills with water, and it becomes like this weird impressionistic bullshit where what the fuck is happening? And this is this is definitely like the the special effects set piece of this fucking film where yeah. there it's just so fucking surreal and weird. But then boom, we're out of it, and we're introduced to a chunk of the film. Where this was all a dream. Because he was drowning. He was drowning. He was and a surfer. As wait, at we... the beginning, he takes a little break and he gets swept under by a little wave and he ends up on the beach and chokes up some water, but he's okay. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, life in the day in the life of a surfer, I suppose. But after he's drowned on the ship in the painting mm-hmm. with the hammer wielding Larry of the Three Stooges coming at him and stuff like yeah. fucking terrifying, fucking terrifying stuff. If you like that whole, like, Lost at Sea, fucking Captain Jack Sparrow, fucking Master and Commander shit, it's right out of that. It's amazing, this mm-hmm. scene where he gets swept under. But he wakes up in a hospital because they'd found him on the beach and his wife's there. Mm-hmm. Because it's like, I joked about it being like Nightmare City or like Dallas. It's like all a dream, right? It's all a dream. Now, it's interesting, these the, the following sequences, because they spend a bit of this movie... I'm going to say about 10, 15 minutes where he's in, he's out of it. It's only to convince you of it being true. That's the only reason they spend this much time. Because if they could have convinced you within a minute or two that it never happened, he's back, it's fine. He goes like, him and his wife go for dinner. Yeah, they go on, they, they go on a date, they reconnect, they... Um, they talk about the death of their daughter. And, he picks and, up his car from the beach. And yeah, they he, could either, talk about moving back, maybe, yeah, and maybe, she's and against it. But it's like a normal conversation. It's a normal conversation. He even got a, a like $600 ticket for his extended stay on the beach uh, for his car. He picks he, up his mail. He picks up his mail. He goes and... Uh, he writes he, a he writes, book. <laughs> he, writes, he writes his story and he mails it off to his agent. He has a full conversation with his agent. His agent's a happy dude. Because um, he'll see people like in the restaurant. He sees this waitress or somebody that looks like the girl that was trying to jump out the window in 1408. And he's like, it's uncanny how I really believed I was there. And he keeps saying like, Maybe you should it check was, me into the fucking nut hatch because he was like it was so vivid and it was so real. It's so it's, and and then uh, he even goes to the retirement home to reconnect with his father. His father he gets this he just wants he just he barely talks to him. He's just sort of seeing if he's all right. Like you all right, dad? And and it's probably that moment where y- you know he had this really harrowing relationship with his father abusive relationship but then when he is looking at his father now he just he's just an old man and he even sheds a tear because his father does have his father perks up a little bit and says his name which mm -hmm. i guess hasn't happened for some time so that's really touching and he's like it's the only way of making peace with his father right so 
It's sort of like uh, Scrooge there in the uh, Ghost of Christmas Future, don't you think? Yeah, go get me, go <laughs> get me a goose, boy. Yeah, uh, so it's sort of like a, a lot like that. Like He gets to live through what could have been yeah. had he escaped the room, I suppose. But like he uh, does keep seeing these things. And then we're if we're paying real close attention, we see like little hints of the number 13 all mm-hmm. over these scenes. Mm-hmm. And there's all sorts of fucking 1408 shit mm-hmm. going on in these scenes. And, you know, the scene with his picking through the letters really thought what was going to end up happening was um, there was an episode of Batman, the animated series back in the 90s where where Batman basically has a life where his parents were never killed and he's happy and he's not Batman anymore and somebody else is Batman and, he, and it's great. And then he goes to read a book or read the newspaper and all the words are fucking twisted around because he's been in, he's been forced into a very deep dream mm-hmm. and his brain can't read in his dream. So, and then he becomes like fucking insane because he can't read anything. And I thought that that's what we were going to do with this scene. I thought when John he starts reading. The- yeah. I thought, cause I was looking at the print. I was like, oh, the print looks weird. And then in my head, I was like, oh, is it doing like that thing in Batman where he can't read cause it's a dream or something like that. And no, they're not doing that. But he does notice that the postcard, this, this, this mysterious postcard that he got initially to go to the dolphin hotel is not present. Cause at this point it's a massive deja vu because yeah. the, clerk at the post office has said to him the exact same thing that he said the day he received that postcard in the past question mark Mm -hmm. or his misremembered past that never really happened so he suddenly starts freaking out and he's looking for this fucking postcard because it's got to be there and he goes back to the post office and he's like did i drop a postcard and the attendant isn't the same attendant it's actually one of the concierge from the hotel at the very beginning. And we know this because they'll flashback. I'm glad they did because when when he turns around, uh, I thought, oh, who's that supposed to be? It's not the same guy. One of the other guys that's in there, because it looks like they're getting ready to move or something like there's some construction going some on. Some maintenance, yeah. He's uh, the guy that helped him when he apparently drowned on the beach, mm-hmm. which I guess never happened either. And I don't even know if this is happening right now because yeah. it's the way that 1408 fucks with you. Yeah. And then a really cool sequence that I really dug was like these these maintenance workers just tearing this post office to shit and pulling up the floor and breaking down the walls and behind the walls, underneath the floors. What is it? It's the hotel room. So he's not left. He, and he freaks out because he was out yeah and he freaks the fuck out and the only it's crazy he freaks out fucking spins around he's in this blackened gnarled destroyed version of this hotel room which i jokingly thought is this what the hotel room really looks like is it this fucked up and burned and soiled and disgusting yeah it was all a lie like oh yeah we give it a light turn every month yeah and and not yeah and and then but the only thing junkie's like so has the toothpick in his mouth and shit but now this is it what what could be left and in its final moments when he's just broken he's he's like what the fuck do i even do i thought i was out i'm not out i can't trust my senses what does he see what uh the last thing it shows it the second last thing it shows him is uh daughter's coffin she's cremated uh lighting on fire he he's particularly offended that it showed him that yeah um very incensed at that image and walks away from it but he hears his daughter's voice calling to him and 
she is there manifested uh the the room has manifested his daughter we know she can't it, she can't be there he embraces her uh and and he's just this 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 wave of emotion hits him and he's so happy to hold his daughter alive in his arms uh and we're gonna everything's gonna be fine and we're gonna fight this and we're gonna live together. like you me and your mom we're back the like we're getting the gang back together and she's saying those very simple things that like returned ghost kids always say like i'm so cold i love you mm-hmm. uh they won't let me leave. They won't and let me leave. And I'm yeah. sorry. Like, I I don't mind the whole storyline of the daughter. I mean, like, it's very important. It makes a story. And they did it. They did it very well. And it's very sad and all mm-hmm. that stuff. But I fucking hate this scene because it's just like, let's just tug at people's heartstrings one more time. It's important because I think that this demonstrates a cruelty that the room has not yet done. It sort of already did. Mm. when he gets swept away in this moment at the peak of fiery madness his nick cage's finest when he when you lose anybody you accept it and you move on and if you're resigned to a certain fate you accept it and move on you accept if you're terminally ill you reach a level of acceptance i'm going to die if someone you love is going to die, you reach a level of acceptance, they are going to die or they have died. Yeah. To give you that and force you to go through it again, for him, for this character, is the height of cruelty. And John Cusack will let us know this in his performance. Oh, yeah. Of making him do, taking her again, holding him, holding her in his eye, uh, arms alive, and then having her fall limp dead i think that it was the the exact way that the room wanted to hurt him the most it wouldn't work for every person on earth but it certainly works for here in terms of using this as a narrative tool i it doesn't to me it's like, i'm just tired of it and i find it very cliche you know like i get I, really overtired and really i have a short fuse when it comes to shit like that you know if i flip over a fucking movie and it's like uh, husband is searching for his wife because of losing her in a car accident a year ago and then receives something in the mail that makes him fuck. I don't want to know any more about this. So when it's like after their daughter's death and their marriage falls apart, usually that's when I'm like, fuck, I don't want anything to do with this fucking movie. So I felt like almost tricked into loving this fucking movie. I like this story and I like the short story. I like everything about it. But by the end, I'm just like, oh, really? Like, And he says you can't kill her twice. I'm thinking, yeah, right? I'm there with you. But anyway, that's just me personally. Yes. Not necessarily being touched by these things and thinking that it's cliche and overwrought. I don't think, like, you say cliche, I less cynically say it's a formula and it works. Okay. I do like that when she crumbles into dust, though, and all the bones are everywhere and there's ashes everywhere. It kind of reminds me of Claudia dying in Interview with the Vampire. Yeah, yeah. This was a lot more abrupt than that. But uh, Thank I know. God. All right. But uh, uh, his reaction is horrified at her body crumbling like that to ash. He tries to like, like, it, like again, in like his stupor to, to, I guess, recollect it. But then, of course, he has absolutely reached his end. And this is where he's just like going full on. I'm destroying things. I'm fucking I'm he's gone berserk. Uh, he's out for blood. And he's just destroying the room. If there's no rhyme or reason to it, he's just destroying things in the room. That and this room is already fucking destroyed. Yeah. So right? um, it's like Silent Hill levels of destroyed. Yeah, it yeah. looks very much like that. Now, 
when he looks back to the clock, we're counting down with Casey Kasem. And our <laughs> we got five, four, three, two, one. They, they pull the taffy on this countdown scene. It's really good tension because you don't know what's going to happen. And then, of course, once that hour is over, we're done. We're back. The room looks just as it was. He's lying in the middle of the floor. His coat is over the back of the couch. His bag is just so. Everything looks fine. He's still got all his cognac again. So we're back. The phone is ringing. And this is my favorite use of the phone. And this is probably one of my favorite devices in this because now the operator is speaking to him. And speaking to him like an operator would, you can... Choose to remain for an additional hour. Yeah, it's like it's like, do you want to relive the the next hour, or do you want to try our ex, what is it our express check express checkout, which is in the form of a noose. They suggest he hangs himself. He wants to he why why the artifice why all of this why not just kill me if you want me to do, just do it yourself. The phone informs him that it's. Because he has free will. He needs to... All of their guests have free will. All of our guests have free will. And he needs to demonstrate his free will. He must kill himself if he wants out. That is the only solution. John Cusack probably considers it for a moment. But he sees that this is what the room does. And it's kind of this attitude of this far, no father. And... He decides that he is going to light the room on fire. He's going to take that very expensive cognac and he's going to do a little Molotov cocktail. You would point it out rightfully so. How does he know he's doing any of this? Yeah, right. Like he says, I know this isn't real. I know that isn't real, but I know this fire is real. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, you don't. Yeah. This thing has demonstrated several times that it can change environment. It can create entire memories for you it can make you think you're going places doing things like even in this extended dream sequence that he had where he thought he was out of the room i was like what's happening i was like we're seeing scenes in the movie is this what he's actually living or did he have an entire hallucination where he was driving to this place yeah two how much time has passed days several days maybe a week has passed maybe more a month who knows at this point in real 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 life the real life that we know and trust like real actual real life one step removed from actual real life because it's a movie still his wife is on the way to the fucking hotel because she has called the fucking cops the cops are up there shit is happening they can't get in the room there's fucking fire firefighters because the place is burning down and she's at street level and can see all of this he doesn't know that there's anyone coming to save him. Mm-hmm. He just lights his cigarette and while the place burns around him. And because he's seen the film Backdraft, <laughs> he takes the, he takes his heavy ashtray, fucking flings it at the wall, at the window. I'm thinking that he can do all these things and he's not being tricked at this moment because I'm assuming that the, the, the hotel's, or sorry, the room's madness has like a it like winds up for an hour and then it like it lets you go lets you go yeah. and then so it, like if he was trying to do this at 49 minutes into the hour no way like he would he would be like sitting there with like a fucking toothpick and he thinks it's a lighter and he would just like sitting there like trying to light a toothpick but and... it's like okay you're really gonna do it now you're really really gonna do it we got you okay here's your actual fire and your actual flammable liquid 
So yeah. yeah. So he throws the he throws the he breaks out the window that creates like this huge rush and the yeah, place the oxygen in the the room basically is engulfed in flame instantly. Yeah. So yeah. the room just ignites. It's pretty crazy, and that is the end of John Cusack. Um, and that's one of the endings of this film. Not the ending that we got to see, but one of the endings nevertheless. This is where I kind of have theories about this. And I was going to wait till we were done, 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 done. But we're not quite done because there's multiple various endings. So we might as well give my theory here about the whole fire thing. Way back in the very, very beginning, he hasn't been in the room maybe five minutes and it's boiling hot and he gets somebody to come and help the thermostat. And he says on the phone, this room is on fire. Having watched the whole thing, there's a whole bunch of things like where uh, people are yelling and screaming that he can't see them. There's uh, the phone melting in his hand. There's a lot of like fire things. The room looks burnt out later on. There's just a lot of fire things. And the sprinklers go on for no reason. I really, really think that he's just trapped in this complete hallucination. And he spent literally five minutes in that room. And it was engulfed in flames. And all of this time, it's been a huge hallucination. He's just been burning to death in there. And the only thing that he got to do was pick up the phone, yell that it's on fire, maybe a few minutes later, try again maybe, and it melted in his hand. Sprinklers came on to no avail. The fire rescue was trying to help him, and that's maybe the people with the hammer coming in and coming at him and scaring him because he's in the throes of this fucking crazy hallucination thanks to this haunted room or evil room. Mm-hmm. I really think that he wasn't in that room an hour. I think he was probably in there a few minutes and it was engulfed in flame because there's all these little tiny hits that are like, this is why getting blasted with a fire hose would feel like being swept out to sea to somebody in a completely psychotic fucking rage induced by this haunted evil room. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I really think that he spent five whole minutes in there. It's a very, very workable theory. It's It could be true. Yeah. It could be true. I love rewatching this movie for that. <laughs> to try and like figure out not where he was, because we know where he was throughout this whole thing. He was in the fucking room. But like things like alternate endings that fuck with you. And the one that we didn't get to see that I've never seen, or maybe I saw it once. I think I saw it once, and I think I actually own it somewhere from ages ago when this first came out. Um, when he was out of the room, quote unquote, he actually did write a book because later on, his wife and his agent are going through some of his belongings and his agent receives the manuscript of what he saw or what he thought he saw when he was in room 1408, which is just mental because in that storyline, he still wouldn't have escaped the room. He wouldn't have been out for months and had dinner with his wife and, you know, went and retrieved his car from the beach where he drowned and all those things Mm -hmm. and written this manuscript, but his agent receives it anyway. So this room is truly existing outside of time at that point entirely. Mm -hmm. So that would have been a really cool ending too, but it wasn't one that was released on collector's editions that I know of. And like, it wasn't the theatrical release Mm -hmm. at all because in theaters there's, there was two, there was a theatrical run that ends like the one that we saw where he doesn't make it out of that room. Well, none of them he makes it out of the room, so it is kind of a downer ending no matter how you slice this film. But he dies, and his wife is at his funeral later, and the hotel manager 
approaches her mm-hmm. after the service, apologizing like he would for it being such a delicate time, but that he has some of her husband's possessions. And contained therein is his voice recorder, which I guess Olin hasn't listened to at this point, but is trying to return these things. And the wife says, no, no, it would be too hard. I don't want any of that stuff, which is kind of a good decision, I think. And Samuel L. Jackson returns to his car and decides to listen to what's on the recorder. And here's not only like him, uh, an opinion of himself being a bit of a prick, and he sort of smiles about that, but then he hears the writer's daughter's voice. It would have been interesting if the wife would have heard it. There is an alternate ending where the wife does get to hear her daughter's voice on the recorder. Mm-hmm. So while he's listening to this recorder in his car, we see the burnt body, not quite corpse, but burnt body pop up of junkies that pop up in his back seat and give him a bit of a jump scare people mm-hmm. didn't like the annoying jump scare so that's cut from the dvd release oh is it yeah there's like four endings and all all of them have aspects people didn't like uh, i think um for me what i think uh this seems to be um there it's a bit of a downer when your main character uh ultimately dies but there is also a bit of an uplifting aspect to it as well because Sam Jackson's going to tell us that the, they the the hotel has shut down that room. That room is is just that's off limits now. It's no longer a room that can even be possibly be rented out anymore. So that's it. Yeah, he killed the room. Yeah, yeah. So successfully, John Cusack by dying by going to that room and killing himself is the last victim. Of the of that of that room, sorry. It would yeah. have been um, somewhat uplifting, although as much of a downer ending. It would have ended where it originally did with him in a fucking burning room, laying on the floor. Mm-hmm. And I never saw it, but I heard that there was a a voiceover of his daughter saying, "Everybody dies," mm-hmm. which is one of those opinions that his daughter did have while she was dying. Yeah. And that's sort of sweet because if you're going to be all like heaven and togetherness and family and stuff, you'd be like, well, he's finally rejoined his daughter, mm-hmm. I suppose. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of cute to have an eerie disembodied girl's voice saying creepy things like everybody oh, dies yeah, yeah, for sure. over the end of something that is such sure, a downer sure, ending. Sure, yeah. So they've tried all these different little formulas to appease the public, which I always hate. It's sort of like the end of The Descent, where they've tried two endings and everyone likes, well, I don't know who the fuck likes the American ending where she escapes and everything's good. I much prefer the ending where she doesn't. And it makes a lot more sense. And they shouldn't have had to experiment for the fucking whims of other people and their little delicate sensibilities. And that's exactly what this says. It's not just one experiment, though. I think there's basically four experiments you can mix and match with the endings of this. Mm -hmm. The disambiguous nature of the ending, because of the fact that there's multiple endings, could suit the disambiguous nature of the story itself. I suppose, yeah. Yeah. How do we know which one's the real ending? Yeah. I choose to believe it's with a little daughter saying everybody dies. That works. Yeah, it's the only true thing in all of those endings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I enjoy that. What did you think? Uh, I think it's a really cool film. I think it's uh, in terms of an inanimate object that fucks with you. It's uh, it's right up there. I think that both John Cusack and Sam Jackson deliver uh, excellent performances. And um, I think that there's a lot to recommend about the film. In terms of, of the later film adaptations of Stephen King's works, I think it's one of the better ones. Mm-hmm. And and I think if people have brushed it aside or didn't really pay attention to it when it came out, like, you know, now's the time to go back and check it out because uh, it's really worth your time. 
And I think it's 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 really good horror in the classic sense. Are you going to be checking it out or are you going to be checking in um, to room 1408 forever and ever and ever? At least an hour. Uh, what do we got next for him? Current next we have Maximum Overdrive. Thank fucking God. We're going to get out of this fucking hotel room and onto the highway to hell. I could never be more pleased. And then Cujo. We're going to drive that highway right into the countryside to a lonely <laughs> barn where a dog is going to trap us in a car. We thought we got free, but no. That's right. So this is part one of our triple Stephen King adaptation. Yeah. Uh, that just <laughs> organically happened. It wasn't really planned. But, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's a you wanted me to talk more about writing here? Fucking talk about writing. I'll talk about writing. I'll talk about Stephen King. Tune in next week where I go on about fucking writing again. Like, I uh, did... Like I said, talk on Vine Torture Cast about writing because Chris is so slick and getting me to talk about writing. But I like talking about writing with Chris because he reads most of what I write. He's like my favorite person to send my writing to, let alone my favorite person anyway. So as cranky as I get about it, I'm going to really like talking more about Stephen King writing because this was really fun. I like talking about writing as a craft Mm -hmm. way more than I like talking about my fucking doing it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Maximum Overdrive, probably up there with one of the best Stephen King adaptations. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah. So I'm he really excited. He had such a hand in it, too. Like, yeah. It's, and we get into the, a little more of the Stephen Kinginess. We have his cameo. We have mm-hmm. a little more numerology. And we have some fucking ACDC. I was going to say, it's like we have a fucking rocking soundtrack. Are you kidding me? Yeah. What a beautiful film. It really is. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we're going to have a lot of fun until you're going to stop having fun with Cujo. Oh, and you know what? It's fucking hot enough in here for us to have done Cujo today. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't have any warm milk. Oh, oh, and on that disgusting note, I'm Last Night. And I'm Typical Lydia. And you've been listening to Dead Air.